And so I decided, you know what, I want to make my own projects and I want to start creating stories about North Carolina, you know, our history and our culture. Um, you know, because I see, I would see a lot of people, you know, complain about, you know, these images of, of our people and why, why people, you know, why haven't, hasn't anyone did a story about the Wilmington Massacre or about Tulsa? I said, you know what, let me stop complaining and let me try to do something. So I said, you know what, I'm going to start doing my own thing and build a team and we're going to start making our own projects and start off doing documentaries. And that's how I kind of got started. All of my career, I have focused on bringing to light undertold or hidden stories and histories. That's been my focus in my career, not just about 1898, but women's histories, uh, African-American histories, uh, enslaved people's histories. And so 1898 and the secrets that it held is just, you know, a perfect example of how I like to bring up to the forefront the truth of history, whether they're comfortable or uncomfortable, violent. I mean, history is not pretty and we need to really understand our history. And 1898 was one of those hidden histories that just really needed to be brought forward. In American history that speaks to all of these issues, the city of Wilmington, North Carolina, once stood out as a vibrant mixed race community and went over to the Republican Party, the party of Lincoln and, and the party of, uh, of black suffrage. Hundreds of these families fled, they're terrified, and they went into the woods and to a black cemetery thinking the white government wouldn't go there. Absolutely, they've been warned about it. Um, there was a man named George Henry White, uh, who was a congressman, a black man from North Carolina. The very first voice that you heard was that of Chris Everett, award-winning director of the documentary Wilmington on Fire. And immediately after uh, Mr. Everett was Lorraine Umfley. She's the chief of collections management for the North Carolina Department of Cultural Resources. And she also authored a book entitled A Day of Blood, the 1898 Wilmington Race Riot. The documentary film Wilmington on Fire investigates the Wilmington Massacre of 1898, the only successful coup in the United States where subscribers to white supremacy led a violent movement that culminated on November 10th, 1898, where the political coup and massacre of dozens, if not hundreds of black Americans were killed in a pre-planned murder spree that was designed to remove African-Americans from political office, as well as from the city of Wilmington, plus permanently disenfranchised black citizens of North Carolina. The coup came as a response to the federal reconstruction legislation of 1865 to 1877 that enforced the right to vote for African-Americans in North Carolina and throughout the South. And it caused greater participation of blacks in politics and African-Americans held office in the then Republican Southern state governments. But the end of reconstruction would soon lead to events like the Wilmington massacre. Events like the massacre in Wilmington often were preceded by economic hard times, and such was the case before the Wilmington Massacre. A quite severe recession was in place in the 1880s and was particularly difficult for white farmers. And feeling that the Democratic nor Republican Party would act sufficiently, uh, the white farmers formed the Populist or People's Party. And they soon realized that by making commonalities with the Republicans, it would help advance their own goals. And so the populace agreed not to run competing candidates in the 1894 election. And it kind of caused or forged a fusion, a coalition 
between the Republicans and the Populist Party. And this fusion party took control of the state legislature. They enacted reforms and that were favorable to blacks and the working class whites. In the 1890s, Wilmington was North Carolina's most populous city with a robust commercial port and economy. And blacks flourished and they had their own newspaper and businesses and doctors and lawyers and they held political office. However, white supremacists sought to end all of this, and a plan was hatched that called for stealing the upcoming 1898 federal and state election by exploiting the inherent racism of white populist supporters and political differences between the then black and white Republicans, as well as employ terroristic tactics that were designed to intimidate and bring violence. Thus, you have the Wilmington Massacre, newspaper articles preceding the massacre um, would have cartoon depictions and drawings where created to show blacks as being wildly corrupt and grossly incompetent incompetent to hold office and the most popular trope were cartoons and drawings showing how much a threat black men were to white women there's even mention of a speech in Georgia where a woman named uh, Rebecca Ann Felton openly called for a lynching as the appropriate response to the threat she said black men posed to white women and had to be met by that such force. The atmosphere was set and many men, women and children were killed, shot dead in the streets. The homes were taken from them and burned to the ground. The newspaper in town was burned to the ground, the black newspaper. And many that hadn't left were forced to leave. You can read much about this event by purchasing a book, even A Day of Blood by Lorraine Umfleet. You can search the Internet. You can get a documentary. Get the Wilmington on Fire documentary by Chris Everett, our guest. But for now, please join me for this History Notes podcast focusing on the year 1898 and the Wilmington Massacre. We'll start by talking to our guest, Chris Everett, and later Lorraine Umfleet. And we'll start by asking Mr. Everett about what led to the massacre. I'm Rodney Dawson, your host. This is History Notes. Right. Well, you know, you have to take it back. You have to start really from the Civil War. Um, when you had the Civil War, after that, after the end of the Civil War and we had Reconstruction, um, the thing is the United States didn't really punish the Confederates. Um, they still allowed them to participate in politics and things like that. Um, but you had this whole movement that started to happen in North Carolina where you had Black folks who were Republican at the time and you also had a populist party as well. And the Populist Party and Black folks from the Republican Party kind of started to come together in this thing called fusion politics. And they were able to capture a lot of the offices um, throughout North Carolina and also ended up having a mayor, a, um, a fusionist Republican mayor in Wilmington. Then you ended up having a fusionist Republican governor um, in North Carolina as well. And so the Democratic Party at this time saw that they lost power and they wanted to turn this thing around and get it back to the whole, the, the stronghold of white supremacy. And that's when the whole plan came into place of doing a coup and establishing North Carolina, you know, with this white supremacy movement. And so Wilmington at the time was North Carolina's largest city. It wasn't Raleigh. It wasn't Charlotte. Wilmington was the place to be. Um, the ports there were great. Um, Wilmington actually had some of the best salaries um, in the state. So a lot of people were drawn to it, man, of, of all races, um, especially African-Americans came there from all over. 
wanting to get involved, getting a piece of that American dream. And also the political arena was very attractive as well. And they really promoted that of getting involved in politics, you know, getting um, having good schools for your kids. And if you want to start a business, you can do that as well or work at one of these good jobs and and, and just raise your family and do what you got to do. So it became a very attractive place for African-Americans, which led in the 18 like 1898 becoming slightly majority um, African-American populated. And so, like I said, the white supremacist movement at the time really wanted to destroy this whole fusion coalition of whites and blacks coming together. And so that's what happened. They used all type of tricks, propaganda through the newspapers, which was the big media outlet during that time, um, to really add fuel to that fire. So when they actually did the coup and massacre, people would say, you know what? It was black people's fault. They shouldn't have did this. They deserved it. Now, white supremacy is 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 back, you know, to normal like it was prior to the Civil War. And that's what happened. You know, they overthrew the government. Um, one of the big players in that was Alex Manley, who had the newspaper at the time. They used a controversial article that he published through his newspaper, you know, to really hype up the average white man in town and also throughout the state of North Carolina to really, you know, get people to say, hey, this is why. We don't need African-Americans involved in politics. They don't need to be involved in business because they're getting too big headed. They're going to want white women, all of this propaganda stuff. And that really scared a lot of white folks during the time. And so that really hyped them up. And the, the power players behind that used that to their advantage for this massacre to happen. Once it happened, Alfred Moore Waddell, another leader of the coup d'etat that happened, made himself mayor. They removed the people in office in Wilmington. And the coup was solidified and the the federal government really didn't intervene, you know, one, because back then the role of the president was very different than it is now. And so it was hard for him to really intervene like he wanted to. Then also he didn't want to start another civil war either, because a lot of the folks that were involved in the coup, a lot of them fought for the Confederacy. Um, back then, a lot of the major players behind the coup of 1898 fought for the Confederate um, side of the military. And so a lot of that stuff goes back to that and the government not really enforcing what they should have enforced then. If they would have done that, the massacre probably never would have happened. Thank you, Chris. Um, I now want to turn to Larray Umfleet, the author of A Day of Blood. And I'm going to pose the same or similar question to her uh, with, with a caveat of sort. Uh, Chris kind of touched on what I'm going to asked Larray to kind of clarify and break it down analytically how these parties coexisted in the case of the Populist Party and the Republican Party, and then the reemergence of the Democratic Party who was in power, then lost it during Reconstruction, and then sought to regain it, and also how what happened in Wilmington played such a larger role for the overall politics in the state, the influence that Wilmington had as being the largest city is essentially the Charlotte of today. And then I want to ask Larray this, first of all, um, the, how you classify it, how you denote, uh, some people call it a riot, some people call it a massacre. I have my qualms with it. I tend to call it a massacre. And is there a difference? And can you help us out with this, Larray? It's many things. Historically, a riot in the 1890s was white invasion of a black neighborhood which is what happened in 1898. However, as we moved into the 20th century and we've had subsequent violence in streets, the word, the term riot has 
gotten different connotations. And the reason I use the word riot on the cover of my book is because I worked with the Wilmington Race Riot Commission that was created by the state legislature. And um, my title is tied to the work of the commission. However, um, I don't call it a riot much at all because it is a massacre. It's mass murder in the streets and no one held accountable for it. It's untold violence and it's a political and economic upheaval. So we have lots of other words that we can use to describe the violence and the events of November 10th, 1898, which is the day of the violence. Who were some of the key players uh, that pushed or organized the uh, massacre? Well, Wilmington, um, as the state's largest city, became a pivotal piece of a puzzle for control of the state of North Carolina. And so I have to go into some state politics just for a few minutes and say that we had Democratic Party and Republican Party in 1898. But the Democratic Party and Republican Party of that year are not the same as the Democratic and Republican parties of 2022. The Republican Party of 1898 was more of a progressive party. It was the party of white businessmen who had moved into the state after Civil War. It was the party of African-American voters. And um, it was, like I said, very progressive. The Democratic Party of 1898 was the conservative uh, party that uh, was run by former Confederates and uh, was tied to an agrarian lifestyle for the most part. Um, the middle part of this is that there was a third party that we have to control, contend with. There was a third party we have to contend with, and that's the Populist Party. And the Populist Party was disaffected Democrats who felt like the Democratic Party wasn't meeting their needs, so they pulled away from the Democratic Party and created the third party. And so in the election system in 1896, we had the first Republican governor elected in North Carolina since Reconstruction because the Republican Party and the Populist Party fused their voting power together to merge in an uncomfortable alliance the ability to defeat the Democratic Party at the ballot box. And in 1896, we see Daniel Russell get elected governor. And by 1898, his midterm election, the Democratic Party decided that they wanted to break apart fusion, do all that they could do to bring all white men back into the Democratic Party. And the way to do that was the white supremacy platform. And so the, even though the Democratic Party had always had white supremacy as part of their uh, talking points every election, in 1898, it took forefront, and the Democratic Party created a tripartite system of uh, campaigning to defeat fusion and break it apart. And that used people who would use their newspapers, like Josephus Daniels from the News and Observer, people who traveled around the state giving speeches, like Charles Brantley Aycock and um, Alfred Moore Waddell of Wilmington. And then they used a vigilante arm of the Democratic Party, which are the red shirts. 
And the red shirts would run through black neighborhoods and uh, rough people up, threaten people, um, hit them at their homes for election day and intimidate them to keep them from getting registered to vote and things like that. So the state politics play a role in what happened in Wilmington. And in Wilmington, the leadership in Wilmington was made up of the Democratic Party and mainly upper-class white businessmen. And they wanted to do the same format to take control of the city because by 1898, Wilmington had a slight majority black population and it had a black-white coalition of governance with a white mayor who was a Republican, but then black members uh, from the various parts of the city serving on the city board of aldermen. And the white businessmen in the Democratic Party wanted to break that apart and regain control of the city of Wilmington. And so the 1898 statewide political campaign and the campaign in Wilmington coalesced into making Wilmington the uh, center point of the Democratic Party campaign. And they felt if they couldn't win Wilmington, they weren't going to win the state. So those are the the ways in which Wilmington fits into a larger scheme of the history of North Carolina. A lot of information we've jammed into less than 20 minutes of history notes. I'm your host, Rodney Dawson. We asked our friends, Chris Everett, the director of the award-winning documentary, Wilmington on Fire, and also Larray Umfleet, who authored the book, A Day of Blood. And she's also an employee of the North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources. And you can see more of Lorraine Umfleet at the Greensboro History Museum. Check us out. We are Tuesday through Sunday on Tuesday through Saturday. We're 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Sunday, we're 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. But each one of those days, we have an exhibit on our top floor, North Carolina Democracy. Take the elevator or the stairs. We're free and uh, Lorraine Umfleet does an excellent job on what we call the expert take, and she expounds more on this topic and, and much more. So we're going to return after this break and hear more from Mr. Everett and Mrs. Umfleet and talk about the actual incidents or describe what happened on November 10th, 1898, and how Wilmington is affected today. So please return with us on History Notes. How do you take the history in a place like this, famous for all of the learning tools of yesteryear, and then connect the generations together including the diverse and digital learners of today? The Greensboro History Museum Education Webinar Series. Engage, learning, and beyond. Let's go. All right, and uh, you know, I always oh, never asked you this question uh, before in one-on-one conversation, so I guess I'll ask you with a mic in front of me. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Well, it's interesting. You made, you mentioned Lewis Brandon. He and I are from the same hometown, Asheville, North Carolina, and we both came to Greensboro for the purpose of going to North Carolina A&T. I must admit that uh, Mr. Brandon's a little ahead of me in my time. I did not know him until I got here and actually did not realize uh, how 
knowledgeable he was of Greensboro to after I graduated from college, and he actually started working in my current position. I got to know more about Lewis Brandon, but he is a phenomenon. That's Max Sims, head of the East Market Street Development Corporation. Look for Max's contribution to an upcoming episode of History Notes on the History of East Greensboro. For now, let's get back to our review of 1898, The Wilmington Massacre. We've been talking to Chris Everett, director of Wilmington on Fire, an award-winning documentary, and Lorraine Umfleet, author of A Day of Blood. I want to return by asking Lorraine about the connection between women's suffrage and the 1898 Wilmington Massacre. The two events are not too far apart, so let's see if there's a connection. Um, some of the white upper class women in Wilmington were very civic minded women to a certain extent. Um, and they were organizing themselves. Some of them were most likely suffragists, but at the point of 1898, these women were strictly focused on making sure that white men won the election and the um stereotype of pure white womanhood uh wearing white dresses and and being pure wholesome women that stereotype was one that was used in some of the political propaganda because white men would show these women in danger from big black brutes and caricatures and cartoons and so women became a tool in the arsenal of the white supremacy campaign. And then later these women are um, supporting their husbands as they move into the 20th century, uh, continuing those types of things with the 1900 election again. But um, it's interesting to note that uh, the 14th Amendment gave black men the right to vote. And then Black women didn't get the right to vote until the passage of the suffrage amendment in 1920. And even then, they really didn't have the opportunity to have a voice because of the work that the white supremacy campaign had done between 1898 and the 1920s to disenfranchise Black voters in general. I was certainly surprised. Um, I, I was shocked by the nastiness and also the sort of pornographic um, content of the white supremacy campaign. You know, save us, save us, white women from black beast rapists, that sort of thing. It was nasty. It was false. As I said, it was fake news. Um, So the very way in which the Democratic Party in the state of North Carolina took power back after a coalition government of Republicans and populists in the 1890s and kept that power until I, until I was in college. The Democratic Party only, you could only win office in the Democratic Party if you had participated in the white supremacy campaign. So for 40, 30 or 40 years, our leaders had come from white supremacy campaign veterans. Um, But you know what else I was, I went to 
Sternberger Elementary School. I went to Guilford High School. I went to Wake Forest in North Carolina. I didn't know one word about this. I didn't understand what had happened, how a, a, how racial terrorism had taken the right to vote away from African-American people in the South. And I never heard a word about the fact that Black women organized and registered to vote in North Carolina and were elected to city offices and, and men were too by the 1940s. So I was astonished by the whole thing. And I was also astonished by the fact that no one in my family had ever mentioned anything like that to me. Um, it was a hoax on school children <laughs> that um, we weren't taught the true history of, of the people who held the power in our state. It's good to understand the climate and how it was set, uh, the environment preceding the 1898 Wilmington Massacre. Lorraine Umfleet did an excellent job um, tying women's suffrage and how that campaign was racialized and the white supremacy campaign uh, influenced the women's suffrage uh, to a great degree and also the role education played. And so right after Lorraine Umfleet, we heard from another respected voice, Professor Glenda Gilmore, she is the Peter V. and C. Van Woodward Professor of History in African-American Studies and American Studies at Yale University. Uh, and she earned her PhD from UNC Chapel Hill. So she tied everything in as a product of Greensboro. Uh, she said something that I quite often found myself saying to myself and saying aloud as a product of schools here in North Carolina. Uh, this was never taught. Um, and I didn't learn it until afterwards. And I imagine that's going to be the case for a lot of us. And speaking of education, we also want to go back to Chris Everett about his documentary, Wilmington on Fire, and the role that documentary can play in our K-12 schools and as well with our teachers. They benefit a lot. Um, I know we've been doing um, we've been doing screenings um, with a lot of uh, public schools, um, especially in Wilmington and a few other places um, throughout North Carolina. But I think the appropriate you know, age that we've been targeting is eighth grade on up, you know, eighth grade to all the way to seniors in high school. And a lot of times it's just not showing the film. You know, the teacher really has to set the tone and, and kind of set the, the you know, the mindset, you know what I'm saying? Uh, a lot of times the teachers, they prepare the students for what they're about to watch. So they're teaching them about 1898, North Carolina history, you know, Civil War, Reconstruction, 1898 and all of that. So they kind of have a brief history before watching the film. And when they watch the film, they say, okay, that's what she was talking about. That's the, some of the things we we're learning. And so that opens their minds even more of knowing this type of history. Because I know growing up, we never heard anything about the 1898 massacre, period. You know, we really didn't even learn anything about even like the Laurenburg Institute, where I'm from in Laurenburg. You know, even our own local history and, and Black history, we didn't really learn anything about. And so that's another reason why I felt like doing this film was important because I thought about me growing up as a kid in the school system and wishing that I had this type of knowledge, you know, coming along. And so that's why we definitely we target, you know, eighth grade all the way up to seniors in high school and, and the students. I think the first screening I did <laughs> with some eighth graders, I was nervous because, like, oh, man, they're going to fall asleep. They're going to say it's boring, <laughs> you know. And they loved it. They loved it. They had a lot of questions. Um, now, they, where was this? This was in Wilmington. This was actually in Williston Middle School. Okay. And um, they loved it because, you know, it's right there in their own backyard. Right. 
And, you know, they started looking at some of the, the monuments and some street names as, yo, I, I know this place. And then also it, it encouraged them to, to dig more into their own family history as well. And then also a lot of them had an interest for filmmaking and documentary filmmaking. So they had questions about that. Like, how can I do something like this? You know, so they had questions about that. And I still talk to some of these um, these kids to this day, man. They done, a lot of them, um, I think they're like seniors in high school now about to graduate. It's like two of them that I still chat with. They email me and stuff like that. And one, one, one person is actually um, going to go to school for film now. That's good news. Well, yeah. I, I, as I watched it, I was saying to myself, 23andMe or uh, Ancestry.com going to make some money off this. A bunch of people <laughs> trying to look up <laughs> right. the lineage if it goes back to Wilmington. Right. And, uh, and I'm going to ask you this at the end, but for any educator that's listening at this point, how can they get the project? Well, you know, it's on Amazon. Um, go to Amazon.com. Check it out on Amazon Prime. You can also go to Vimeo um, as well. You can also go to Quelle TV as well. That's a Black-owned streaming service. Um, but, you know, for everyone, everyone pretty much has Amazon. So just go to Amazon, type in Wilmington on Fire, or you can just go to WilmingtonOnFire.com and it'll have all the links to where you can stream it at. That was Chris Everett, the award-winning director of Wilmington on Fire. As he stated, you can check out that documentary. Wonderful piece of work and uh, schools have already benefited from it. I think schools here in Guilford County where Greensboro and the Greensboro History Museum is located, can benefit from it as well. We also talked to Lorraine Umfleet with the Department of Natural and Cultural Resources and author of A Day of Blood. Uh, she chronicled the history of the event and delved into the political scene and really laid out what the environment was like and what led to the climate uh, preceding the uh, massacre in Wilmington in the year 1898. Some people call it a riot and some even call it an insurrection. Uh, before I jump into that, before we close out, I also want to thank uh, Dr. Glenda Gilmore from Yale University, a North Carolina resident who's written extensively about subjects like the 1898 Wilmington race riot. Uh, she's a, with the African-American Department and American Studies at Yale University and just offered a lot and just benefited from talking to her. But the Wilmington Massacre, also known by some as an insurrection, which we know a little bit about since uh, January of 2021, uh, two days after the election of a white mayor in Wilmington back in 1898 in the biracial city council, the Democratic White Supremacist Party illegally seized power from that elected government as the only successful coup to ever occur in the United States. And more than 1,500 white men participated in this attack. They even burned down the black newspaper, burning down the building itself. They ran the officials and community leaders out of the town and some were shot on sight, women and children, and killed many blacks in widespread murderous attacks, but especially uh, destroyed this particular historic neighborhood called the Brooklyn neighborhood in Wilmington. There's a historic photograph taken by this mob, uh, pictures that they took in front of the newspaper, the Wilmington record, as it burned down, burned to the ground. And after destroying its printing press and setting fire to its building on the face, first day of that insurrection on November 10th, 1898. Many say this history we have we're doomed to repeat it if we don't learn from it. And that's uh, what those folks like Dr. Gilmore and Lorraine Unfleet and the reason why uh, Chris Everett put together 
the Wilmington on Fire documentary, and it's the reason why we're highlighting it for this podcast episode here on History Notes. We're noting history. Someone has to, and we enjoy doing it, and we cover topics, sensitive topics such as this, and much more. So we thank you for your time. Uh, We hope that this is beneficial. We hope that this makes our world, our society better. That's the goal. I'm Rodney Dawson, and this has been History Notes.